and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Welcome to another episode of our Sports Corner series here on JOSPT Insights. Today, we are sitting down with Dr. Garrett Bullock to look at a variety of rehabilitative principles to consider while treating and preventing injuries in baseball athletes. What are modifiable, non-modifiable risk factors? What throwing metrics does Dr. Bullock use to gradually return his athletes to play? And how do these metrics differ between different positions? Dr. Garrett Bullock is a former professional baseball player, practicing physical therapist, and quantitative epidemiologist. Dr. Bullock was a Clarendon scholar at the University of Oxford prior to joining the faculty at Wake Forest School of Medicine. He also holds an honorary appointment with the United Kingdom Center for Sport, Exercise, and Osteoarthritis Research versus Arthritis. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights. To start off, can you just give us a lay of the land, especially for clinicians who are listening who may not be thoroughly, intimately knowledgeable about the sport of baseball, when it when you're rehabilitating an athlete who might be an infielder versus an outfielder, maybe a pitcher versus a catcher, what are the, the sport demands, the different demands in regards to these positions, and how might you think about that when it comes to your rehabilitation? You can really split baseball into... Besides, if you take pitchers out of the equation, if we talk about position players, you can really split them into three major positions. Corner, which would be third base, first base, left field to degree, up the middle guys, shortstop, second base, center fielder, right field's kind of depending on what their body type is and what their what type of player they are, can be either one. Um, and then and then catcher, which is its own entity. Those three really have different types of demands on the field of like what they are. Corner guys are going to be bigger, stronger, much more about their power, home runs, drive-in runs kind of, kind of angle. At the, at the professional level, you're really 6'2 to 6'5, 215 pounds to 250, depending on where you are. Probably going to run, we all talk about, so in football, they also go about 40 and baseball is all about 60. They're going to run between a 7 to 7'4, depending on where they are on that scale, how old they are. Up the middle guys are going to be smaller. Second basemen are probably going to be your shortest guys. Not quite as fast as your short stops, but between 5'11", 6'2", run a 6'5", to 6'8", on average. Catchers are kind of, depends on what type of catcher you are, but they're usually a little bit stockier, obviously, because of their physical demands. But I would say five to eight years ago, you would think about catchers being bigger, but we've actually they've actually moved to being quicker behind the plate, so they've actually come to be a little bit smaller at the professional level. Yeah, the first thing you always have to think about is throwing within baseball from pitching, catching, middle infield, corner guys, outfielders. The biggest thing I always think of when I talk to parents, when I talk to younger athletes or coaches, or when I, like a lot of times when I hand off or co treat with PTs around the country, is that throwing demands of those positions are, are different. If you are like first baseman, left fielder, DH, then, uh, de- which is designated hitter, you have, your throwing is a lot less. So if, say if you have a UCL sprain or UCL tear, they usually, guys, you can kind of hide that injury to a degree, especially at first base. I've had guys that, that great hitters have a UCL tear or UCL sprain, trying to get them through the season. They're just underhanding it back to pitcher when they throw it around the horn. 
So those guys, you can get away with less load demand. So their rehab to return of how in terms of volume intensity has, can be less. Off the middle guys, specifically uh, center field and shortstop, their intensity of their throws are going to be extremely high, almost max effort, but their number of throws is going to be less compared to, say, a first baseman who might make a bunch of throws during the game, say 40, but, but most of them will be very low effort. Um, while shortstop might make six throws in a game and all of them might be at full max at different arm angles as well on the move. Center fielders and right fielders are going to max effort throws probably four to six as well, but they're going to be at one angle over the top, full max effort, 120 to 180 feet, depending on where they're from. Catchers is kind of the enigma on this. They do the most low effort throws and probably the most max effort throws. When you talk about James Andrews's throwing demands and pitch counts, they always recommend if you play catcher and pitcher, you should not catch the next day. That's because you throw back to the pitcher every time, but then you also have to throw down the second every inning, and then you have to throw to first, usually a couple times a game, and definitely down the second on a, on a steal or um, some other type of play. Breaking down like the groups of positions and then the throwing demands in each. So then are you are there specific injuries that you end up seeing in each of those groups more often than in the other groups? Yeah. So with with uh, with catchers in terms of throwing injuries, you're, you're going to see them actually a lot like pitchers. Um, you see probably the second most prevalence in people that don't pitch is catchers for Tommy John or for Labrum. Um, in terms of other injuries from other players, the biggest one is that I've seen the most from shortstops, um, and that's because they throw from different angles, and I see a lot of flexor tendon issues from them. But I'd say the biggest ones are across the board, but it's just you get a lot less prevalence when you get to different positions besides catcher and pitcher is Tommy John, which is collateral ligament reconstruction, and rotator cuff slash leg movement issues. Now, in terms of the biggest, I would say, upper extremity injuries, that happen in position players is hook a handmade injuries. And that's usually from check swings, the little bone in the, uh, the medial inferior aspect of your hand where the canal guion is and where the nerve goes in that, that is actually, I, I, when I played and when I, when I treated guys every day, that's the biggest one I saw in position players was hook a handmates from check swings because they have their swing at full effort. And then a check swing is like you stop it midway because you're trying not to like swing throughs at what we call strikes. So if you stop before you get the midpoint of your body, then it's a it's not called a, a swing, so it can be a ball if it's outside the zone. And so that that initial stop really jams right into the hook and handmate. It takes a while to get back, and then grip strength, especially intrinsics, kind of you kind of lose that. And they need that manipulation for really how to control the bat, especially they're more of a contact guy. I see the contact being the biggest issue after they get over the initial like return to return to their home because they just can't manipulate their, the bat in their hands the same way. So since we have different positions here that have different intensities, different sport demands, how, what are you keeping in mind when rehabilitating these, pa- these patients or these athletes? And how are you changing that plan of care based on what position they're actually getting back to? For, for throws, like I've talked about, uh, it's the intensity of your corner guys is going to be less. more about trying to get them back on the field enough to throw. I usually, if those guys are near the end of the season, we put them in DH, they throw 98. I'm probably fine to get through the season. If you're a shortstop and you want to return to shortstop, we need to get you to 180 feet without pain, be able to throw that for probably three sets of 10. And then also you have to be able to throw from multiple angles, especially on turning set, uh, turning two, like the shortstop or something. I mean, excuse me, second baseman throws it to the shortstop and then they throw it first. So like then they have to have this reactive throw ability 
that really, besides middle infielders, a little bit of third base as well, bump plays and stuff and, and comebackers. But uh, shortstop and second baseman really have to think about, I'm at second base. The guy throws it a little bit behind me. I have to go and get that, still hold on to the bag, swipe the bag, and then maybe throw it like a low angle or mid three quarters angle to get around the runner while I'm trying to throw to a second base. Uh, turn two. You know, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about the fact that like shortstops really do have a lot more variability in motion as far as where they're throing to, whether it be first, second, third, or home. Or, whereas in somebody in the outfielder, yes, yeah, certainly needs a lot more power, a lot more distance, but the mechanics of throwing are actually much more redundant. Yeah. So like the end of end of uh, throwing rehab for these, for middle infielders specifically, is that once they get to about 120, 150, depending how old they are and what level they're at, once they can do about two or three sets, no pain, feel good at that level. Then we start working on quick little reaction throws at different levels. Like I'm like I'm literally feeding power feeding them. Like as I'm a, as I'm a second baseman All right now, I want you to like jump over the guy and throw this one. You're gonna be on the run and kind of throw at your side angle. And we start off. I try to bring up the, like in this case the net a little bit at first. I want to stay keep them at their position. I'd rather bring the quote unquote first base to them a little bit and start. Say we're at probably about 100 feet from that place from where they're going to be at shortstop so maybe we start at 60 feet and then move that back to slowly to 100 120 feet and so you've mentioned a a few times different distances for different positions can you just in one snippet here kind of consolidate that for the listeners so they can come back to listen to this part when they are rehabilitating baseball athletes you know what, what are the different distances and metrics that you use and how do they how does that change between different positions when i played um i'm gonna give the caveat that traditionally you're taught in sets of numbers in terms of throws when I played as a professional, we were taught in time to throw, um, and that's it's it's more of a, a Latin American thought process, uh, and I kind of like that. So I talk about a minute, I talk about a minute and distance instead of number throws and distance. So I like that personally because if I say I'm rehabbing and I'm doing whatever, and like, uh, are we on 14 or are we on 15? But I I could hold a watch and say, all right, we're going to throw for five minutes at this distance. <laughs> so. Um, I so the big distances I think about are 45 feet, uh, which is just that's really trying to see do you have pain when you do the throwing motion at all. 60 feet is kind of where you're really starting to really train throwing. What I consider I start people 45 and then move to 60. The next one is 75, uh, which is, is is about three quarters of a full base path. 90 feet is kind of my second big mark. So 60 feet, 90 feet are my two first marks you have to meet. And then after that's 120. So if you're standing on the foul line, that's all the way to the back end of the uh, the infield. 150 is is the next one. That's usually after you can do 150 is when you're allowed to get on the on the mound. 180 is kind of the next one where if you can do that's where you can start using other pitches. Is so if you throw off the mound, all right, you throw into 150, pretty good, and you go to 180, you're still pretty good. That's when we can start manipulating other pitches. And then 220. Is, is kind of my last one where I have a designated distance. Higher level, that's that's what we're getting into the long toss region. Other higher level guys, like when I when I train, uh, rehab college guys or professional guys, after that, it really depends on what type of pitcher they are and what type of preference they have. So like when I played, I was a, a max arm speed guy. So I like to go 350, 400 feet. So like for me to be comfortable with the pitch in a game, I got to throw at least 300 feet. There's other guys that don't need that. They don't need the arm speed to do that. They use more of their lever. Um, they're usually typically much taller, bigger guys, like um, like six six for pitchers. So like they might only go to two twenty two fifty, but they're fine. But then they need to. They can really just use their 
their leverage. So that's where like preference comes in beyond 220 for myself. Do you follow a specific or like a general uh, throwing program or is it super individualized to each person just because you're, you have so much expertise? There's only one really like standardized program, which is 45 feet, 60 feet, 90 feet, 75, 90, two sets at 15 of this at one distance. And you can't go to the next distance. So do three sets of 15. That is a great one to go off as your general template. I like to, as anyone that gets really deep into stuff, I, 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 the beginning really isn't that much different, but once we get past 150 is where my 150 feet is where like I start to really individualize depending on what's their pitch preference, what's their arm slot. You know, are they like, are they arm generator, arm speed guy, or are they more just a, a big, just force generator that just can push the ball? So in like where they are in terms of their elasticity versus stiffness, like um, all that kind of comes into play. What about things to keep in mind for prevention? Keys that you want to pass on for what can we do to, we know the injuries that are popular in these positions. How can we prevent those? Yeah. So, and so the biggest one generally in baseball is just really your, your basic arm care, which every, which everyone in baseball at, at some level knows what that means. <laughs> and that's, you know, in depending on different people from little league all the way up, that can be very like it, very different things. If you talk to someone that's a little league age or their parents, they'll be like, oh yeah, I do bands, quote unquote, or I, I do some arm pair, quote unquote, or, or something, or they may, I do small weights or, or, or something to that level. And then when you get to all the way to professional, it's like, I spend 55 minutes and I do this, 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 and this, my work on my internal rotation on my hip on my land leg. And then it's my internal rotation, on my shoulder, and then it's my flexibility, whatever. Once you get to college, that's definitely within every program at some level. Before then, as I said, everyone understands that this needs to happen, but we're having a major issue with, in terms of, uh, and this is kind of youth sport generally, amateur sport, so we understand that needs to happen. We understand the effectiveness of it, but actually doing it is a total, totally different animal. If I, if I told every kid in the country that plays a throwing sport and, and that, or an overhead athlete sport, if they did tease wise, external rotation, worked on their balance, and then did some shoulder stretching, which is very simple and, and, and not even getting to the stretching surface of what can happen. And we all did that two to three times a week. That would be, that would be a huge, huge chink in the armor of injuries. Some of the more recent stuff coming out of baseball is, you know, what can we actually change, like modifiable and non-modifiable? And if we're talking about prevention or for rehab, where to really focus your efforts? Where, where is it going to be worth it and where is it not going to be worth it? With um, baseball in the last 10 to 15 years, shoulder range of motion has been definitely the most studied thing out there. You know, this really comes from Kevin Welk back in uh, about 2008-2010 range, and um, between him and Mike Reinald really looked at internal rotation, how does that change over time, and all that. What since then we've seen a lot of change in argument is like, is it just dominant internal rotation versus non-dominant? Is it total rotation? Is it external rotation? Is it shoulder horizontal induction? Is it shoulder flexion? From if you look at the literature and then you look at, you know, if you look at a lot of data, what you see is that there's really two things. One is that actually the how these baseball athletes have looked over this 15 years has really changed. Is that when when Kevin Wilk did this original study, which was very seminal, is that internal rotation was probably the biggest factor. But over time that, you know, we started intervening on, you know, sleeper stretch or uh, shoulder horizontal across the body, pin the scapula stretch, 
athletes have really changed to much more of um, having losing shoulder flexion, having with increased plyo balls, having a decreased external rotation strength at their max ER because of the short straightening cycle and the plyometrics they're doing with that. And then also posterior shoulder tightness within shoulder horizontal adduction, which is slightly different than internal rotation stretching. If you use the technical term, it's called phenotypic drift over time. In the more clinical term, which is what this is for, is that we're seeing is that the clinical, the, how you view them in the clinic of what injury it, risk has is actually shifted. The second one is, is that the ambiguity and the, and the uh, arguments are really missing one important piece within this is that the non-modifiables are not being accounted for. And this is left and right-handed, what type of position you play, what, you know, what's your previous injury history, um, and even how your, your bony morphology has, uh, has adapted from when you're, when you're doing your growth spurts, which um, mostly specifically in humeral torsion. And the, and the argument that we see within this, with, that we get the pushback from this is that, well, we can't change this. But yes, you can't change non-modifiables, but it does give you more important understanding of what their risk is. And so well, we, what I, the example I always use to make this much more clinically palpable is that say we have someone that has a major non-modifiable of their humeral torsion is very, they have a massive humeral torsion difference between their dominant and non-dominant, which we see a lot in especially right-handers that throw 95 plus. But say that he has a, a, a 10 degree difference in his internal rotation versus uh, on his dominant side versus non-dominant side. So he's kind of on the edge and what we would consider at risk. This pitcher here, we might have to give more, more focus to during the season and then have much more robust internal rotation focused rehab in terms of manual therapy, dry noodling, their self, their home program, their self program, their warm up, and we need to measure them much more um, astutely than say someone that has the same ten degrees difference, but their humeral torsions a lot. So what we're seeing is that that person's buffer zone for risk is a lot less than say someone that doesn't have that non-modifiable risk that that person has. So with that with that pitcher that is at high risk with the non-modifiable, we probably need to measure him every week, and he probably needs to have manual therapy every time after he pitches. The guy that has the less modifiable, maybe we measure him two to three times a year with the regular team and we give them just a regular program in terms of just a little bit more individualized in terms of stretching and then maybe a uh, lacrosse ball and then measure. And then at midterm, we see if we need to actually add manual therapy or not. For those who are unfamiliar with humeral torsion, is that something that you can estimate or measure clinically? Do you need imaging to do it? And then also at what age range does this really come into play? Yeah, so, so humeral torsion is... So when, when you develop as, a, as a, a young person, is that throwing, the act of throwing at high velocities or throwing a lot at a, at a medium velocity keeps you, uh, ha, it keeps your throwing arm having more twisting of, the, of your shoulder backwards compared to your um, non-dominant arm. So this is why you get great layback or greater external rotation on your throwing arm versus your non-throwing arm. This is very important to help make a high-level thrower and without this, you know, you, there is a wall that, that someone that doesn't throw when they're younger can probably never reach in terms of throwing ability. So you do need humeral torsion to be a good, uh, a good thrower. But, but however, there's a Goldilocks effect. Too much puts you at more risk. Too little, you, you can't get the layback to have enough performance. Too much usually is more about risk, specifically to the elbow, compared to um, too little, which is probably more shoulder injury related. 
but so the ways to measure that, so the, the, the gold standard within clinic is with uh, ultrasound, which I know that a lot of people do not have access to. It costs a couple thousand dollars to buy, you have to train up, et cetera. Um, I actually published a uh, paper in J uh, Journal Shoulder and Elbow Surgery recently about having a prediction model to measure humeral torsion. Um, and it takes basic factors of your age, uh, where you're from, like in terms of if you're North American born, Asian born, or Latin American born, your previous injury history from a surgical standpoint at the shoulder, and then just range of motion, external, internal rotation, horizontal abduction, that's it. This sounds like a great thing to have access to. Um, we will be putting um, a link to that within the show notes. Yeah, and so in the, in the equations, all that in there, and then it's easily input into an Excel sheet. So you just you know you see you just have a tap for external rotation, internal rotation, your age, your handedness, um, whatever, and then you just put in the numbers, and then you just put a little equal sign with a basically plus 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 for each one of those, and then opt out your number. That is peak baseball nerd Excel sheet for risk factors. Oh, I love it so much. So the non-modifiable non factors, we're just because we can't change them doesn't mean that we ignore them. We need to take them into consideration because that's definitely going to affect their risk factor for injury. Can, are there any other non-modifiable risk factors that we should be taking into consideration that you want to make sure everybody knows about? Yeah. So, hand, so I mentioned handedness. And so how these, how a left versus a right-handed player looks like, especially on the pitching level, is, is very different clinically. Right-handers are going to be taller. They're going to be tighter. They're going to have probably more humeral torsion too. But that left-handers are going to be looser and a little bit shorter. So there's so some of that's due to left-handers, a lot less left-handers. But some of that's also due to what you know what people look for in specific type of, of players. So like th that's one. Uh, another one is obviously previous injuries, specifically surgery. So if you've had Tommy John or rotator cuff, you're probably not going to recover as well. So you have to take that into account. And then some things as even like their body shape uh, or like BMI to a degree can be changed, but especially at the younger levels. But when you get to the older guys, a lot of times that really can't be in, intervened on too much. You have to really, because especially at the pro level, we talk about guys, oh, well, this guy's getting better shape or that. I mean, the classic example is I think it was CC Sabathia lost like 20 or 30 pounds. And then he wasn't quite the same pitcher. He had to like, he, he didn't get back fully to what he was before in terms of because he was needing he, to get better shape, but he had to gain some weight back because he didn't have no mass to generate power. Garrett, I mean, that is a wonderful view of just some specifics of kind of things to take into consideration when any of these athletes could walk into our doors. So thank you so much for being here today and, and digging into all this and sharing your expertise, both as an athlete and as a researcher and a clinician. I mean, this has been awesome. Thanks for having me. So one last time, we would like to thank Dr. Bullock for joining us on the show today. And as always, thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm -hmm.